Locked Up by Alfredo M. Bonanno Preface Prison has come out of the shadows into the limelight, as not a day passes without some allusion to, quote, solving the problem of the state's overflowing dungeon- dungeons. Advances in surveillance technology are offering alternative models of isolation and control that could see a large number of the latter's potentially explosive inmates diffused and opportunely tagged or microchipped, dispatched to the urban ghettos of capital from whence they came. The main obstacle, bolstered by some retrograde attempts to gain votes through a sworn intractability, Concerning the, quote, enemy within is power's need for a mass consensus from those it had led to believe that the state's protection racket and promise of long custodial sentences were the ultimate social guarantee. The dilemma has given space to a whole range of social cops in an ongoing battle that the sycophantic media has not missed the opportunity to illuminate. The occult world of prison never fails to provide good headlines for those in search of a frisson, quote, enlightened discussion, or fodder for animated pub talk, the latter often concluding with a call for the reinstatement of the death penalty. In actual fact, we are witnessing the labor pains of a transitional period concerning the whole question of sanctions and punishment in accordance with the requirements of post-industrial capital. The reality of enclosure, of being locked up in reinforced strongboxes for days, years, decades, is truly in contrast with the prevailing model of social democracy, which would prefer the perfect world of identity and participation also for those who accept punishment as their rightful due. And so, once again, following the feminist issue, the work issue, flexi time and mobility, ecology, etc., we have come to the point where the ever-adjusting requirements of power meet the solicitations of the concerned left of the left, along with obsolete Stalinists and renegade revolutionaries, head-on. Abolish prison has become the slogan of the slogan of the moment when, where a whole anti-prison culture has emerged in myriads of tomes on prison conditions and earnest accountances, accountancies delineating crimes and alternative forms of retribution worthy of the Holy Fathers of the Inquisition. Separation is the essence of politics, and by isolating prison from the state and capital as whole, The harbingers of social surgery can find allies across the whole societal spectrum, from priests to social workers, university professors to ex-cons. There is an answer for everything in the fantasy world of alternatives. Every bad coin has its flip side. But the totality of prison is not simply a place. It is also a condition, the antithesis of which is freedom. By the same token, the absence of freedom is prison, and only when the latter is perceived as one's own condition does it become possible to enter the destructive dimension without measure. The viscid altruism that dams up the free-flowing energy of revolt disappears when disgust for the prison institution and its putrid essence reaches the invisible shackles that bind us all, turning empathy into projectuality. Prison is not a domain reserved for specialists, such as those who have done time themselves or have a particular rapport with individual prisoners. It is the underlying reality of everyday life. Each and every discourse of capital taken to its logical conclusion. The words that follow were spoken by a comrade in struggle, a struggle where prison has always been present in its its stark reality and an essential objective in the extensive destruction that storming the heavens implies. Little did he know as he wrote the introduction to the Italian publication of the transcript from Rabivia Prison in 1997 that a six-year sentence awaited him as the outcome of the infamous Marini trial. 
It should not go unsaid that, after months of being displayed for public slaughter as head of an inexistent armed gang, three of these years were for a crime of opinion, quote, subversive propaganda, and other three for, quote, concourse and robbery on the accusation of Marini's, quote, penitent terrorist. But that is not what we want to talk about here, neither victim nor political prisoner. What follows are the prison memoirs of Alfredo Bonanno, but a contribution by a comrade among comrades to a struggle that will continue until all prisons are destroyed, till not one of them, not one stone of them is left standing. As we said, the text that follows is the transcription of a meeting in Bologna, as, and as such, its monochrome pages cannot render to- tonal nuances, timing, intensity, or laughter. The tools of the writer are cast aside in favor of the irrepeatable moment, the unique encounter of heart and mind that occurs when comrades meet face to face. The talk begins with a warning not to expect any of the specialist information concerning prisons that is so in so much vogue, so much in vogue, and contains personal impressions and anecdotes that illuminate some of the absurdity of life behind bars as well as traces the various tendencies in the evolution of punishment and attitudes to the latter by certain elements of the once revolutionary movement in Italy. Quote, Everything is linked by one guiding thread, the impelling need to destroy all prisons along with the rest of the structures of capital. Nothing less will do. J.W. Introductory Note Prison is the mainstay of the present society. Often it does not seem so, but it is. Our permissive, educative society allows itself to be guided by enlightened politicians and is against any recourse to strong measures. It looks on scandalized as the massacres dotted all over the world map and seems to be composed of so many respectable citizens whose only concerns are respecting nature and paying as little tax as possible. This society, which considers itself to be far beyond barbarity and horror, has prison on its every on its very doorstep. Now, the mere existence of a place where men and women are held locked up in opportunely equipped iron cages, watched over by other men and women wielding bunches of keys, a place where human beings spend years and years of their lives doing nothing, absolutely nothing. It's a sign of the utmost disgrace, not just for this society, but for a whole historical era. I am writing this introduction in Rebivia prison, and I don't feel like changing a word of the talk that I gave in Bologna a few years ago. If I compare the thick-headedness of the prison institution today with that of my experiences recounted in the text published below, I see that nothing has changed. Nothing could change. Prison is a sore to society to, is a sore that society tries to in vain conceal, like the doctors in the seventeenth century who treated the plague by putting ointment on the sores, but left rats running around among the rubbish today at every level of the prison hierarchy. Technicians are trying to cover up this or that horrible aspect of prison, not realizing that the only way to face the latter is to destroy it. We must destroy all prisons and leave not one stone standing, Just, but not keep a few around in order to remember them in the way that humanity has done with other constructions that testified of the most atrocious infamy. Now, someone who tends to beat about the bush will ask, How can we destroy prison? How can we get rid of it completely in a society like this, where a bunch of bosses called the state decide for everybody and impose these decisions by force? So, the best of these squawkers, the quick-witted with hearts of gold, try to mitigate prisoners' suffering by giving them cinema once a week, colored TV, almost edible food, weekly visits, some hope of being released before the end of their sentence, and everything else. Of course... These good people want something in exchange. After all, that's not asking too much. They want prisoners to behave and show respect to the warders. 
acquire the capacity to resist years and years of inactivity and sexual abstinence, undergo psychological treatment by specialized personnel, and declare, more or less openly, that they have been redeemed and are capable of returning to the society that expelled them for misbehaving. I have been a frequenter of prisons for more than a quarter of a century, so can compare a few things. Once prisoners literally lived in an infamous, disgusting hole visited by rats and various other creatures. They only saw the light of day for a few minutes, did not have TV, and could not even make a cup of coffee in their cells. The situation has certainly improved today. Prisoners in Italy can actually make meals, even cakes, in the cell. They have more hours recreation in a day than they used to get in a month, and can have extra visits and make a few phone calls to the family. They can work for a decent wage, half the average wave outside, watch color TV, have a fridge, a shower, and everything else. Of course, prisoners accept these improvements. They're not stupid. And why not? They also accept paying the price by showing themselves to be good and condescending, arguing with the guards as little as possible and telling stories to the educators and psychologists who hang around the corridors like shadows, waiting for it to be time to go home and for the end of the month to pick up their salary. Apart from the obvious consequence of lowering the level of the clash in prisons, nobody in this scenario really believes that the prisoner will be reinserted into so-called civil society. It is a farce that each player recites magnificently. Let's take the priest, for example. If he isn't stupid, he knows perfectly well that all the prisoners who go to Mass go to meet prisoners from other wings whom they wouldn't otherwise see. He accepts that with the hypocrisy of his trade and gets on with it. Of course, now and again, some prisoner will show a sudden faith enlightenment on the road to Damascus, but this, the priest knows perfectly well, is functional to the treatment for going out on parole or having a suspended sentence or another of the many benefits provided for by the law, but subordinate to the approval of the custodial personnel, educators, psychologists, and also the priest. What was clear when one faces when one, when one was face to face with the police becomes hazy inside. Today, nearly all prisoners are losing their identity as such and are accepting permissive changes that are gradually trapping them within a mechanism that promises not so much to redeem them as to let them out a little before the end of their time. As the attentive reader of this little book will see, there is a line of reasoning that claims to want to abolish prison. Now, to abolish means to abolate, that is, eliminate an essential component from society. Leaving things as they are, this abolition would be impossible, or, if it were to come about, it would turn out to be in the interests of the power. Of power. Let's try to go into this. The only way to do something serious about prison is to destroy it. There is no more absurd or utopian, that is no more absurd or utopian, than the thesis that wants to abolish it. In both cases, the state for which prison is essential would have recourse to extreme measures, but specific conditions of revolutionary character could make the destruction of prison possible. They could the create social and political upheaval that would make this utopia come true, due to the sudden absence of the power required for prison to continue to exist. In the case of abolition, if it were to happen progressively, it would mean that the state was providing for prison in a different way. In fact, something of the sort is actually happening. As I will show, prisons are opening up. Political forces that were once cut off from them now enter them regularly. There are all kinds of cultural manifestations, cinema, theater, painting, poetry. All these sectors are hard at work. This opening also requires the prisoner's participation. At first, participation seems to eliminate disparity, allowing everyone to be equal. It means that people don't have to stay locked up in cells all day, and gives them the possibility to talk and make their demands heard. And this is true in that the, quote, new prison 
has taken the place of the old. But not all prisons are prepared to participate. Some still have their dignity as outlaws, which they don't want to lose, so they refuse. I am not proposing the old distinction here between, quote, political and, quote, common law prisoners, which has never really convinced me. Personally, I have always refused, and continue to do so now in the prison where I am writing this introduction, the label of political prisoner. I am referring to the outlaws, those whose lives have been entirely dedicated to living against and beyond the conditions established by law. It is clear that if, on the one hand, prison is opening up to prisoners who are prepared to participate, it is closing down on those who are not and want to remain outlaws, even in prison. Given the advances in control in society, the great potential of information technology in this field, and the centralization of the security services and the police, at least at the European level, we can well imagine that, the, that those going against the law in the not-too-distant future really will have the absolute determination of the outlaw. We can sum up by saying that the project of power for the future is to abolish the traditional prison and open it up to participation, and at the same time create a new, absolutely closed version, a prison with white coats where the real outlaws will end their days. This is the prison of the future, and those who are talking about abolition will be happy, and that in the future these prisons with white coats might not even be called by such a hateful name, but rather clinics for mental patients. Isn't someone who insists on rebelling and affirming their identity as an outlaw, in defiance of all propositions to participate in society, absolutely mad? And do mad people perhaps not constitute a medical rather than a penitentiary problem? Such a society, having a greater capacity for social and political control, would call for everyone to collaborate in this repressive project, so would have less need to have recourse to sentencing. The very concept of sentencing would be put in question. Basically, most of the cr prison population today are people who have committed crime, quote, crimes, such as taking drugs, drug dealing, petty theft, administrative offenses, etc., which, from one moment to the next, might no longer be considered such. By removing these people from prison and reducing the probability of more serious offenses, such as robbery and kidnapping, through increased levels of social control, few actual real crimes will remain. Crimes of passion could very well be dealt with through recourse to house arrest, and that is the intention. And so, who would remain in prison under this such conditions? The few thousand individuals who refuse to accept this project, who hate such a choice and refuse to obey or put themselves down. In a word, conscious rebels who continue to attack, perhaps against all logic, and against whom it will be possible to apply specific conditions of detention and, quote, cure, closer to that of an asylum than an actual prison. That is where the logical premise of prison abolition leads us in the last analysis. The state could very well espouse this thesis at some time in the not-too-distant future. Prison is the most direct, brutal expression of power, and like power, it must be destroyed. It cannot be abolished progressively. Anyone who thinks they can improve it now in order to destroy it in the future will be forever a captive of it. The revolutionary project of anarchists is to struggle along with the exploited and push them to rebel against all abuse and oppression, so also against prison. What moves them is the desire for a better world, a better life with dignity and ethic, where economy and politics have been destroyed. There can be no place for prison in that world. That is why anarchists scare power. That is why they are locked up in prison. Alfredo M. Bonanno, Rabibia Prison, March 20th, 1997 locked up. Vici le temps des assassins. Rimbaud. 
The present question is something that anarchists and the revolutionary movement in general have been involved in for a long time. We come back to it periodically for, because, for many of us, it is something that touches us directly, or touches comrades close to us whom we love. I know what prison is like, and why it exists and functions, or how it might cease to exist or function better according to one's point of view, is no doubt a very interesting subject. I have heard many talks, conferences, and debates in the past, particularly about ten years ago. At that time, reality was seen analytically due to a certain Marxism that was both of the political scene, both culturally and practically, and the main aspect of the debate on prison was the, quote, professionalism with which it was carried out. One was usually listening to, or imagined one was listening to, someone who knew something about prison. Well, that's not the case here. In fact, I don't know at all that much about prison. I'm not aware of knowing much about prison, and I'm certainly not a specialist on the subject, and even less someone who has suffered all that much. A bit, yes. So, if that is the way you see things, I mean, from a kind of professional point of view, don't expect much from this talk. No professionalism, no specific competence. I should say right away that I feel a kind of repulsion, a sense of profound disgust for people who present themselves on a particular subject and split reality up into sectors, declaring, I know all about this subject, now I'll show you. I don't have that competence. I have had my misfortunes, of course, in the sense that I went that I first went to prison over 20 years ago, and in fact, when I found myself locked up in a cell for the first time, I found myself in great difficulty. The first thing I wanted to do was destroy the radio, because it was a very loud transmission, and after a few minutes locked up in there, I felt as though I was going mad. I took off a shoe and tried to smash the object that was making such an obscene din. The noise was coming from an armored box screwed into the ceiling next to the light bulb that was constantly lit. After a few minutes, a head appeared at the peephole of the armored door and said, "'Excuse me, what are you doing?' I answered, "'I'm trying to—' "'No, that's not necessary. All you have to do is call me. I'm the cleaner, so I switch off the radio from outside, and everything's okay.' At that moment, I discovered what prison was, and is. There, that sums up my specific culture on the subject of prison. Prison is something that destroys you, that seems absolutely unbearable. How on earth will I be able to survive in here with this thing driving me crazy? Snap, a little gesture, and it's over. This is my professionalism on prison. And it's also a little personal story concerning my imprisonment. There have been many studies about prison, of course, but I know little about them. Bear in mind that these studies have not only been carried out by specialists of the sociology of deviance, but even by prisoners themselves and funded by the ministry. One such study concerns Bergamo prison. I saw it and found incredible stuff in it. Amazing graphics, massive statistical explanations about the prison population there over a period of three years, I think it was. However, these studies are completely useless. They are not serious material that could really be presented to the people who actually make decisions. In my opinion, one shouldn't overestimate scientific instruments and their capabilities, especially in this field. The social science that are not, are not precise sciences that make it possible to speak of scientific research. There are many instruments, but they are practically useless. The mathematical instruments we have at our disposal are constantly being devalued. We are now aware that they prove absolutely nothing. It is impossible to come to any conclusion. You can't say, as you can with mice, given that there are X number of people in prison, let's see what happens. It's not so simple. People are not mice, fortunately. And moreover, the science that studies people, sociology, is, for the main part, a lot of codswallop, fortunately. But what are the various theoretical positions concerning prison? 
I think we could say that there are many, but they all leave a lot to be desired. Generally speaking, I'm not particularly interested in them. There are the various disquisitions of the philosophers, and there is a chatter of the so-called specialists. One or two theoretical positions bore a little more weight about, say, 20 years ago. One historical theory links prison to a particular view of the evolution of capitalist forms of production. Here we see a patched-up reconstruction that goes like this. The old prison corresponded to pre-capitalist or pre-mercantile production. And then there was the mercantile prison, the capitalist prison, the imperialist prison. Well, all rubbish in my opinion. And I don't care if it's possible to talk about a post-industrial prison today. It seems stupid to me, but there are actually people with the desire and capacity to do so who even managed to sell this nonsense off as something interesting. To me, this theoretical posing is nothing but sociological gymnastics. The main supporters of prison, without actually realizing or desiring it, are the prisoners themselves. Just like the worker who sees himself in the dimension of the factory, if he is a factory worker, or in any case in the chains that hold him down. As Malatesta said, being accustomed to the chains, we don't realize that we are able to walk, not thanks to them, but in spite of them, because there is something that is unclear. Often, when talking to a prison prisoner who has done 20, even 30 years prison, he will tell you all about the woes of prison life, etc., of course, but you also realize that he has a love-hate relationship with the institution, because basically... It has become his life, and that is part of the problem. So you realize that you cannot work out a critique of prison by starting off from the ideas and experiences that come out of it, because the experience is certainly negative and full of repulsion and hatred of that place, but it is always ambivalent, like all experiences of life. I have lived this myself, and I can't explain how I felt it growing inside me. Human beings are not automata. They don't see things in black and white. Well, it happens that the instant you get out of prison, you have the sensation that you are leaving something dear to you. Why? Because you know that you are leaving a part of your life inside. Because you spent some of your life there, which even if it was under terrible conditions, is still a part of you. And even if you lived badly and suffered horribly, which is not always the case, it, it is always better than the nothing that your life is reduced to the moment it disappears. So, even pain, any pain, is better than nothing. It is always something positive. Perhaps we can't explain it, but we know it. Prisoners know it. So they are precisely the first to support prison. Then there is common sense, this massive stumbling lock that cannot see how it would be possible to do without prison. In fact, this common sense pushes proposals for the abolition of prison up a blind alley, showing them to be ridiculous because such proposals would have to have their cake and eat it, whereas it would be far easier to simply say, prison is necessary in the, the present state of affairs. How can I put the jeweler's right to safeguard his property before my right to take his jewels at gunpoint? I, who have no money and nothing to eat. The two things are a contradiction. How can I overcome this contradiction by putting it at the level of a universal contract, or a natural right desired by gods, the devil, reason, or Kropotkinism? The only way to look at the problem is the elementary one. If all goes well, I take the money. If it doesn't, I do my time. I have spoken to many robbers, and one of the first I met said to me, Listen, you, can, you who can read and write, take a piece of paper and do the sums. How much can I earn in three years working in a factory? At the time, the factory wage was about 15 million, million old lear a month. And he continued, if I do a robbery and it goes well, I take more than 15 million, 20, maybe 30. If go, things go wrong, I do three years and I'm back where I started. Moreover, if it does go wrong, I'm not working under a boss who drives me crazy for three years, 
or in Germany, sleeping in porta cabins. I'm in jail, and at least I'm respected here. I'm a bank robber, and when I go out in the yard, I'm seen as a serious person, not a poor sod that lives from his labor. Frankly, with all my science, I was at a loss for words. What he said didn't sound wrong to me, even at the level of basic economics. And what can I say? But you know, you can't touch property. He just spat in my face. Or, the scales are wrong, you must set them right. But then, for him, they had tipped the scales once and for all. As Fichte, who knew something about philosophy, or at least thought he, at least he thought so, said, Whoever had, has been defrauded of what is due to him on the basis of the social contract has the right to go and take it back. And he who said was that was certainly not a revolutionary or even progressive. Common sense prevents us from imagining society without prison. It does well, in my opinion, because common sense cannot always be ignored. In a society under the present conditions of production, with the existing cultural and political relations, cannot do without prison. To imagine the elimination of prison from the present social context is a fine utopia, good only for filling up the pages of books by those who work in the universities and write in the pay of the state. The rest, in my opinion, is an absolute waste of time, at least for those who understand anything at all. It might be that I didn't quite get these texts about abolishing prison. Yet, I seem to have noticed that some of the people who support abolition, who I actually know, are the same as those who once called themselves, I'm not saying Stalinists, but at least supporters of the chatter of historical materialism on prison, that is, they supported the analysis, the analyses of prison as a reality that is strictly linked to production. <clears throat> These same people are for the abolition of prison today because the current ideas are no longer Stalinist or authoritarian, but are of an anarchist or at least libertarian, libertarian nature. Apart from these people's extraordinary capacity for political evolution, which never ceases to amaze me, I insist that, in any case, concepts such as abolition are still stupid, even if they call themselves anarchists. And why not? Can anarchists not talk rubbish? There's nothing strange about that. There's no equation that says anarchists equals intelligent. Anarchists are not necessarily intelligent, in my opinion. I know many stupid anarchists, and I've encountered many intelligent cops. What's wrong with that? I've never seen anything strange about that. Yes, the concept doesn't seem difficult, because abolition, at least as far as I can see, but perhaps I didn't get it quite right, but, and here we are to clarify ideas, the abolition is par of part of something, is an abolition, is, ab is an ablation. In other words, I take a part and cut it out. Society of which prison is an indispensable component today should therefore take prison and get rid of it like you do with a rotten piece of something. You cut it out and throw it in the dustbin. That is the concept of abolition. Abolish prison and put some other kind of social organization in, in its place, in order not to be a prison in all but name. It must not foresee sanctions or the application of a sentence, law, the principle of coercion, etc., what they possibly don't want to see is the fact that abolition of prison implies the upturning of the situation that is jur jurid juridically created between the victim and the perpetrator of the crime, the so-called guilty party. Today, a separation is between the victim and the guilty one is carried out, and with prison the separation becomes clear. Victim and guilty party must never meet again. In fact, they will forever avoid each other. I will certainly never go to Bergamo to look for the jeweler whose shop I robbed. He would call the police as soon as he saw me. There's no doubt about it. What happens in the case of abolition? The two protagonists of the, quote, illegal deed are not kept apart. On the contrary, they are put in contact through negotiation. For example, they establish what the damages amount to together, and instead of going to prison, the person responsible for the, quote, illegal deed pledges to repay the damage in work or money or through work. For example, it seems that there are people who are happy to have their houses painted. I don't know, that's that sort of thing. In my opinion, these absurdities start off from a philosophical principle that is quite different to that envisaged by the law. 
The separation of the, quote, guilty party from the, quote, victim also depends on the specific situation, except in cases where this was caused by passion or uncontrollable emotions. In most cases, not only does the guilty one try to escape this, to save the booty or his skin, he also tries to have as little contact with the victim as possible. Then there's the other aspect of separation, that which is institutionalized by the intervention of the judge, the lawyer, the court, the prison. So not only separation from the victim, but also from society, with the aftermath of the particular attention paid to re-entry into society. In order to avoid too brisk a contact, there are often precise police practices. You leave prison, the police patrol picks you up immediately, takes you off to the police station, and you are identified again. You are free because you finish your sentence, but they are not satisfied. Hence, the expulsion orders from certain towns, etc. Abolition does not foresee any of this. It is a more complex concept, and it cannot be grasped immediately. But there remains this curious logical anomaly. In theory, ablation is possible. In practice, it is impossible in a social context where prison is obviously an essential component. The destruction of prison, on the other hand, clearly linked to the revolutionary concept of the destruction of the state exists within a process of struggle. In order for what we said earlier to be fully understood, our discourse must not be based on models of efficiency as that would distort as, as that would distort it. The struggles we participate participate in and their consequences can never be seen as getting something in exchange for what we do, of necessarily getting some results from what we put on the carpet. On the contrary, we are often unable to see the consequences of the struggles we participate in. There is a very wide relational dispersion, and the end results cannot be foreseen. We have no idea what might happen as far as other people active in their struggles are concerned. Comrades doing different things, changes in relations, changes in awareness, etc. All of these things come later, when we think everything is over. We are having this discussion here tonight, and for me this is also struggle, because it is not enough for me just to talk for the pleasure of hearing my own voice, and I'm convinced that some new ideas are entering your heads, just as I am experiencing the joy of being here and feeling your physical presence. We are talking about something close to my heart, and I will take this you, I will take this gift you are giving me away with me, just as I think I can give you something to take away with you that might, be, might bear fruit at some time in the future, in another situation, another context. And that has nothing to do with quantity or efficiency. If it means anything at all, it means something in practice, in the things we do, in the transformation we bring about, not in the abstract realm of theory or utopia. That is what I'm trying to say about the destruction of prison. Because as soon as we put ourselves in this logic and begin to act, even in discussions like this evening, or with other things that we won't discuss here but could go into tomorrow at some, or sometime in the near future, we begin to transform reality. Prison becomes one element of this transformation. And by transformation, we mean destruction. Partial destruction in view of the final destruction of the state. I am aware that this concept might seem too rash or too philosophical, but as soon as we start to think about it, it becomes clear because it becomes a basis for all the actions we carry out every day and for the way we behave with those close to us, those we relate to and who put up with us every day, as well as those whom we see from time to time. The revolutionary project is also this. There is no such thing as separate worlds, the world that I live in with my companion, with my children, with the few revolutionary comrades I have met in my life who want to overturn the world, all absolutely separate. That's not so. It's not like that. If I am a bastard in my sexual relations, I cannot be a revolutionary, because these relations immediately transfer themselves into the wider context. 
I might fool one, two, three people, and then the fourth will, ask, will take me to task and I can't deceive them. There must necessarily be unity of intent, that elective affinity that links me to all my actions in any context whatsoever, in everything I do, which I cannot separate. If I'm a bastard, it will come out sooner or later. But let's get back to our argument, which we seem to have left a long way off. Let's look at the whole question of prison, the sentence, and the judiciary that supports and makes the prison possible. And I think that most of you here know more about this than me. I think it might be good if we were to agree on a very simple line of thought. The concept of the sentence is based on one essential principle. The privation that a given person suffers for not having behaved according to pre-established rules. Now, if you look carefully here, we see that this concept applies to many things, even interpersonal relations. But, if, but it only concerns particular sanctions when one finds it oneself laced with the law, a state structure that is capable of enforcing the sanction according to pre-established rules, or at least within the ambit of these rules. What does the state want from the sentence? Not just the state today, which we know to some extent, but the state in general, as it has developed over at least the past 300 years. What does power, which has not always defined itself the state, want to attain? In the first place, it wants to make the so-called guilty party submit to a higher level of physical control than is usual in the so-called free society. I repeat, I don't have any specific competency in this field, but from what I've read, and it isn't much, and perhaps not even up to date, the process of control is now mainly entrusted to information technology, data gathering, etc. Basically, the universal recording of our details that is being carried out by the authorities, for example, I have seen that they are even filling, filing us through our electricity bills, is, so to speak, a roundup strategy that will end up netting all the fish, so only a few will manage to escape. But this filing is only an approximation. Some countries are far ahead in this field, with very efficient procedures. Yet even in the, these countries, there is still some space for extra-legal, if not exactly outlaw, activity in concrete terms. The project of power is certainly on the present, and in tends to include everyone in this data gathering. The more effective preventive control is, the more the state becomes boss of the territory. It is no coincidence, for example, that there is so much talk about the Mafia, to the point of overstepping the boundaries between myth and reality, where it is not clear where one begins and the other ends. I don't know if it's worth going into the question, with this question, which, although fascinating, is not very important in my opinion. However, there can be little doubt this is being exploited at the moment, also for the mysterious aim of reaching an equilibrium between the political parties. But apart from all this, and the establishment of strong preventative control should make prison, at least as we know it, far less necessary. So the function of the sentence is control, and the more this function spreads to the point of becoming preventive, the more prison will tend to change. We must bear in mind that prison is quite different today to what it was 20 years ago. It has changed more over the past 10 years than it did over the last 100, and the whole process is still moving at this rate. Today, the so-called model prisons are not at all different from the maximum security prisons of the 80s. I don't want to split hairs here, but in fact, although there were particular forms of control in the maximum security prisons, there, that was not the main difference. I was held in a maximum security wing, similar to Fossenbrunn, at a time when such places existed, and I was under, under Article 90 for a few months, so I know what it means. Naked body searches every day, dozens of guards outside the cell door every morning, and everything else. These aspects are certainly terrible, but they are not the main thing. There's no effectively maximum security prisons left in Italy today. Nowadays, they may have fewer hours socialty in some phrases. The exercise period may only be allowed in twos or threes, but in the future, everything could get much worse. Why? 
When control covers the whole social territory, the so-called spontaneous prison population will be greatly reduced. Many, quote, crimes will be classified, will be declassified, and there will be less institutional imprisonment, possibly through the use of electronic devices such as transponder, electric bracelets that set off an alarm if you go beyond the assigned perimeter, and so on. Then, yes, there will be a real change in the prisons that remain. Here, isolation, psychological torture, and white coats will take the place of bloodstains on the wall, and science will be applied to obtain the total destruction of, quote, outlaws who have no intention of negotiating with the state. That is how we see prison evolving. I believe that studies are already being carried out on the subject. There would no longer be any need to keep on calling the places of physical annihilation that remain, quote, prisons. In fact, they could be called anything at all. For example, it would be sufficient to qualify someone's behavior as insane in order to have them locked up in a mental asylum. And if the law prevents us from calling these places asylums, and they are called Jesus Christ, they will still be places where people are being killed slowly. So as I said before, the law wants to control, but it also wants to bring the offender that is, he who has marked himself with breaking the rules, back to, quote, normality. It wants to apply an orthopedic technique to those who have behaved differently, draw them into the system, and render them in- innocuous. It wants to ensure that this deformed behavior will not repeat itself and prevent any damage or presumed damage to the community. There is a great contradiction here. Although it no longer fully describes it to the orthopedic ideology, and we will see within what limits it does accept it, the judiciary realized that the sentencing actually makes the, quote, different, more dangerous. So on the one hand, they want to rehabilitate deviants through the use of the sentence, and on the other, this makes them more dangerous. In other words, it gives the individual access to a process that makes him become more of a danger to society, which might have been quite accidental up until then. The distinction I mentioned is based on the existence of a not clearly identifiable minority of rebels that constitute the real community of outlaws inside the prisons. These irreducible individuals have none of the political characteristics that a debate in the 60s tried to pin on them. I think that any distinction now between political and, quote, common law prisoners that existed for a long time and caused so much damage, in my opinion, no longer has any reason to exist. This distinction was sometimes even proposed and supported by anarchists in the 70s and the first half of the 80s. At that time, I was adopted by power in order to maintain a certain equilibrium. At at that time, it was adopted by power in order to maintain a certain equilibrium. For example, when he called the jailer, the politicals would shout, Agente, officer, and the other prisoners, Guardia, guard. So as soon as you hear someone shouting, Agente, you know that they were a comrade. There, something so simple created a distinction that, moved into other areas, often came to be distorted by power and transformed into an instrument of recuperation. This distinction between political and common law prisoners was never really valid anyway, in my opinion, except for those who wanted to use a part of the prison population for their own ends, the growth of the militant, military, and militant party the possibility of building up power relations inside the prison and the plan to use the lumpen proletarian prisoners. In a few cases, certain elements were even used to carry out low works of justice, in plain words, as murderers to kill people. Have I made myself clear? This has taken place. We are talking of an historic responsibility that some of the personalities who once led the old Marxist-Leninist combatant parties and are in free circulation today, took upon themselves. Some of our comrades were also killed that way, not because this distinction was made, but by an instrumentalization of its consequences. 
It puts so-called common prisoners at the disposition of some of those who define themselves political prisoners in order to increase their bargaining power inside the prison or with the ministry in order to get certain results. This ran parallel to the militaristic practice of the management of power, or counterpower, outside, each to their own taste, and the central importance of the industrial workers, guided by the party that was to lead them to their emancipation. These are all dinosaurs today, as far as I'm concerned. They're not in touch with reality as I see it. At least, I hope they're not. Maybe I'm wrong. It might be useful to pause here for a moment in order to clarify our opposition to any struggle for amnesty, something that raised more than a few objections a number of years ago, even among anarchists. The situation now concerning relations between prisoners who insist on positions wrongly defined as irreducible and those who have entered into negotiation with the state, at that time, 1985 to 1986, I think, I published a book, and we will always be ready to storm the gates of heaven again, which many consider to be a criticism of the validity of a struggle for amnesty. And this was also made by some of the anarchist movement, with the usual lack of comprehension. But that was, let's say, a secondary effect. It wasn't the main aim of the book. The important thing, still today, is that nobody has the right to say, Comrades, the war is over! First, nobody declared this war in the first place, and so, until proved otherwise, no one can decree the end of it. No state declared the war, nor did any armed group have the idea of declaring one. The reasoning of characteristic is characteristic of the militaristic, militarist logic, the logic of opposing groups that decide to call a truce at some point. No one can tell us that, quote, the war is over, even less so when the reason for doing so is simply to justify one's own desistance. If I don't feel like carrying on, given that no one can be forced to continue if they don't feel like it, I say, my friends, a man is made of flesh and blood. He can't go on to infinity. So if I don't feel I can make it, what must I do? Sign a piece of paper? I don't didn't carry out any impure actions. I don't get comrades arrested. I'm simply making a declaration of my own desistance. I've always considered this to be a legitimate, legitimate position, because nobody can be obliged to carry on if they don't feel up to it. But desistance is no longer legitimate if, in order to justify it, I come out with the statement, I can't carry on because the war is over. No, I no longer agree, because where does that lead us? To all the others, both inside and outside prison, for whom it isn't true that the war is over, or for whom this concept is dubious, but end up believing it because some everybody is saying so. And desisting or not desisting, they end up reaching the same conclusion. It would be more indecorous for me to push others to desist in order for me to justify my own personal decision to give up the struggle. Now, conditions are radically different today, not in the sense that this in decorousness no longer exists, but in the sense that it is out of date as other attitudes prevail. They no longer say, quote, the war is over, which moreover would be unfounded as they should really say, quote, the war never began, our war wasn't really a social war at all. But most of them prefer to dedicate themselves to astrology or sometimes to assisting prisoners. Yet, if you like, some of them might say, Perhaps we were wrong about some things. Perhaps other ideas should have been accepted in some of the debates that took place around the beginning of the 70s. That would be a fine critical approach. I'm thinking of one meeting at Porto Maguera when, among other things, the killing of Calabresi, super cop responsible for the death of anarchist Giuseppe Pinelli in 1969 when he was, quote, suicided from the fourth floor window of Milan Central Police Station, was under discussion. This was a very important debate, which nobody talks about because hardly anybody knows anything about it. Here, for the first time in Italy, two positions appeared concerning this action. But perhaps not everybody is interested in these questions. Well, between astrology and assistentialism, another hypothesis has appeared. It's necessary to start the war again, but with different weapons, not with a critique of arms, but with the arms of critique. 
They are ready to take on the world again with words. As far as I know, this chatter concerns the management of daily life. So, centers for the elaboration of chatter are appearing everywhere. Centers for the elaboration of information. Radio stations, very important, where between some strange music and pseudo-cultural discussion, concepts of taking over the territory are pushed through. Squats, verging on leg- legislation, on ver- or verging on survival, closed up in themselves in the miserable ghetto. In this way, dreams of controlling the territory are reawakened. Through revarnished old concepts, the same old centralized, more or less militant party, but you can't say that anymore, management is getting into gear and a new pattern is emerging. This is all chatter for the time being. If they are roses, they will blossom. I think that's what is happening. We don't need to give precise indications. We all know what I'm talking about. This chatter has some interesting aspects. The recycling of old caryatids and disuse. Of course, me too. I'm an old caryatid, for goodness sakes. But I still have some ideas that seem to me to be interesting. That's just my opinion. I might be wrong. But there's still a nucleus of comrades in prison who are not prepared to bargain with the state. Our solidarity can go out to those comrades, but that's not enough. It can't be enough for someone with centuries of prison on their backs. Detailed proposals are necessary, indications setting out the concrete destruction of prisons. At the present time, it seems so, at least it seems so to me, there is no sign of any project based on the destruction of prisons. It is necessary to start all over again. If you insist on a kind of cohabitation with power, you increase desistance from the struggle. And it is not just a question of a model of intervention that I disagree with, but with, with, but which I might take into consideration while doing other things if I could. Unfortunately, this whole mechanism is starting up again and could give certain results, results that are not acceptable to us, but which in themselves are quite legitimate. That is why the situation is different today. On the other hand, you won't get a far you won't get far with demonstrations of solidarity, such as, for example, one hundred thousand postcards addressed to the President of the Republic. These things are usually a waste of time. They have never meant much. Yes, letters, telegrams might help comrades to feel they haven't been abandoned, because it's nice that someone in prison to get letters of solidarity, etc. Then, within certain limits, that can make an impression on the prison authorities and on the individual screw who, when he passes to control you at night, might not keep the light on for three seconds, but only one, because he's scared and says to himself, This one got twenty telegrams today. Maybe one of his friends will be waiting for me outside and split my head open. Very important things, for goodness sake. I'm not denying it. It's a question of doing something, applying pressure, even minimal, in order to create a more important deterrent, perhaps. But looking at things realistically, I'm afraid these comrades still have many years ahead of them. The debate on amnesty was not a simple theoretical exercise, however. It soon became an instrument for realizing certain practical actions and suggesting a way of intervening on the question of prison. It was, and continues to be, important in trying to pose the problem of prison from a revolutionary point of view. The acceptance of the struggle for amnesty was a macroscopic mistake, in my opinion. It was also proposed inconsiderately and ignorantly by more than a few anarchists who, not knowing what to do and not being aware of the risks implicit in such a choice, decided to support it. It was a serious political and revolutionary mistake, which I have to say in all honesty, I didn't make. For example, the position regarding the Gozoni Law changed in relation to the justification of the struggle for amnesty. Such choices had consequences for the supporters of revolutionary authority. Clearly, if somebody says that prison changes deterministically according to the changes in society, any attempts by the enemy to adjust my behavior to the historical evolution of reality, for example, the Gozini Law, is all right by me. So I accept it, in view of the struggle moving into other sectors. The same goes for trade union bargaining. 
so I don't see why it should be any different for prison. What seems like innocent sociological theory becomes a precise political choice involving the lives and futures of thousands of comrades in prison. We have always maintained that we are against amnesty, or rather, a struggle for amnesty, which are two different things. When they give us an amnesty of their own accord, we'll take it, and how.